Violent crime is way up since the pandemic began. Last year, Houston police responded to around 470 deaths. That homicide rate was one of the worst that we have seen in three decades. What is going on? And can anything stop those killings? Today, I'm talking with Evan Mintz, who handles communications for Arnold Ventures' criminal justice team, and also with Dr. Howard Henderson, founding director of Texas Southern University's Center for Justice Research. It's Monday, January 24th, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. So, Evan, could you start us off by putting all of this in a national perspective? Are other cities seeing more killings than Houston? You can look at nearly every single major city has seen uh, violent crime rates increase since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. You've seen them go up in Austin, which had its uh, homicide rate nearly double. You've seen it in the state of Montana, which saw its homicide rate nearly double. Nationally, homicide rates have gone up by about 30% across the nation. Dr. Henderson, you have pointed out that cops and courts are meant to deal with crime after it happens, not before it starts. Are there preventive strategies that do work? Number one, we have to think in terms of local programming. I'm talking neighborhood level programming. You can't even say citywide programming because there are some communities in the city of Houston that are free from violent crime. People may be scared, but they are basically free. But they're, but they're essentially uh, in a position where they will never see violent crime in their neighborhood. And then there are other neighborhoods where this is a day-to-day occurrence, okay? So we have to begin to, number one, localize our approach, localize our efforts, which has been found to be effective at policing as well, right? Because the more focused the police can be, the better off they are. The problem is, how do you do that and maintain individual liberties? But also look at the big picture. Look at education look at employment opportunities, look at access to health care, all of these factors we have known for some time decrease the likelihood of criminal behavior existing. We know that. So that's the stopping crime before it starts, rather than responding to the hot spots. Exactly. So when you think about this, there are policies that are at play that make this worse, right? There, there are things that we can do, like ban the box initiatives, uh, opportunities for people to go to work who have minor low-level crimes on the record. Those types of things uh, help move this system along the way. But I think the biggest piece, as you've already stated, is to be proactive, right? This, no matter what we do, we can't avoid systematically investing in these, what they call protective factors. When you think about community association, when you think about schools, we need to begin to reactivate people's involvement in these institutions. The other piece that we don't think about is this is predominantly a male problem, right? Like yeah. we don't, I mean, I, I, you're not afraid of me if you run into me on the street. Lisa, yeah. I got to be honest with you, right? <laughs> women do, women are, are not free from committing crime, but, but the lion's share of this is a, is a male issue that we don't talk about. <laughs> And, and, and I mean, I'm just, I have to be honest with you on that. We, I, I can buy that. We have to deal with that. And, and, and we don't, we overlook that. Research has shown us that one of the most significant predictors of crime is being a man. One of the biggest areas that we overlook, but it's so significant to solve the problem is dealing with the men. So what do you do? You can't just lock a teenage boy in his bedroom until he's 28. 
when I have a teenage boy who grows up in a historically disenfranchised community, mm-hmm. who has very little education, right? Who doesn't know how to handle frustration and aggression. And I give that kid a gun, then that's disaster. Yeah. But does gun control have a prayer in Texas? Not right now. I think the challenge is it's so ingrained in the Texas culture. Here's the deal. We're not talking about responsible gun owners. We're talking about guns in the hands of people who, number one, haven't been trained to use and don't understand responsible gun control. The problem is the politics and the culture are blinding our ability to save lives. So what could you get past? Evan, I know you've thought a lot about gun control in Texas. Something worth noting, one of the weird trends that we've seen uh, is this sudden spike in gun sales in America since the beginning of the pandemic. That's a dynamic that I think is under-researched and understudied, and we don't fully quite get how it may have impacted what's going on. So the idea is that more guns make homicides easier? It's just easier for me to kill somebody if I've got a gun? Exactly. There are supporters of gun ownership out there who think that that's just not true. They think people are going to kill each other one way or another. But you see these bizarre instances of road rage or driving in your hand facilitates the outcome. When I am talking to my neighbors, you know, people who are worried about crime, who are worried about, you know, getting shot on the street, they feel it as this very immediate personal threat right here, right now. But what the two of you seem to be saying is that it's more of a sort of big picture national problem. I mean, and the answers, changing gun laws, dealing with root causes like poverty are just not going to be comforting to a person who's nervous. I mean, is that one of the problems in politics? Something important to keep in mind is that it's both. Like crime trends are national and violent crime happens in hyper-specific places to hyper-specific groups of people. And also there is not this clear divide between perpetrators of violent crime and victims of violent crime. They overlap like a Venn diagram. And if you watch on TV, it's presented as if there are these bad guys out there who are going to go after these vulnerable young women or grandparents or people who just didn't deserve it. It's very difficult to predict just who would be involved in, per se, gun violence. We see the gun, we see the bullet, but what we don't understand are what are those motivating factors. And that's what motivated us to be engaged in this new current study we're in. That is, we're actually asking young males what it was that made you pick up the gun. Because you got to understand the way they see the world. So that's that's your research team at TSU? Yeah, that's it. So we realized that, you know, if, if we're going to fix this problem, mm-hmm. we've heard enough from the, the, the experts. You are the experts. And I'm part of that group. <laughs> but right, but we, all right. We, we've heard enough from us. We've heard enough uh-huh. from us. We've heard enough from the policymakers. We haven't heard anything from the people who are involved in these spaces. And so we felt that if we're going to complete this cycle and this circle, you got to at least understand their perspective. It doesn't mean it's right, but that's the way they see the world. And we understand that perception is reality. What are you hearing when you talk to them? Very interesting. I mean, does does an 18-year-old boy say, oh, it's inflation that drove me to go shoot this guy who threw a sign at me? I mean, come on. Right, right. Exactly. That's why you need experts. But but what we do understand is when they say, I was afraid I was going to be killed. Yeah. Right. We we do understand them saying, I didn't think I was going to live to see the age of 18. Is that true everywhere in all neighborhoods? There are some neighborhoods where, where violent crime may have went down. 
And I think we need to begin to tell that story so that people have a factual baseline to, to begin from. I think that's absolutely right. The, the, the people in places who have the most experience with violence and most experience with policing are often the people furthest away from the camera and furthest away from the newspaper. And understanding what's going on means uh, connecting people who understand this in a visceral, personal way uh, with the media. And that's hard to do because people aren't always sympathetic characters. Uh, they're not always uh, uh, media-friendly backgrounds, but it's reality. This is the world as it exists, uh, and we need to be talking about that. It's not, you know, cops and robbers, good guys versus bad guys. It's, it's all Houstonians. We have to get to the core of the policies and decisions that we can do to save lives. Dr. Henderson, you were talking about focusing police on crime hotspots. Is there a way to do that that is fair to communities of color? Yeah, so let, let me respond to that because that's, a, that's a, a, a loaded question in some respects, right? All right, please. We surveyed, working with Gallup a couple of years ago, we surveyed about 7,000 Americans yeah. from historically disenfranchised communities. So we asked them, do we need police? Do we need more or do we need less policing? And guess what they said? They said, we need more good policing in our community because we don't like violence either, Yeah. right? So I think that is part of that mischaracterization of these communities. Right. They want to see police there, but they don't want to be shaken down every time they go home when they don't have anything on them. I think that's really spot on. And people want to see responses to crime. And I think police want to feel like they're doing something too. So they go into neighborhoods, they, like you say, start patting people down, and then you arrest them for minor drug charges, minor other charges. And these young men who you're plucking out of their neighborhoods away from the institutions that stabilize them. And then you either send them back and they are disconnected. They've been harmed. Research shows that keeping people in jail before trial makes them more likely to commit new crimes. Or if you get people and keep them in prison for long periods of time, young men become men. And normally those men would become breadwinners. They become husbands, they become fathers. And if you deny communities that critical pillar of institutions, then no wonder things become unstable and chaotic. I, I agree with you, Evan. I think the other piece is that the police and society, we haven't been educated on the role of mental health in this violent crime issue. When you're talking about the fact that violence often goes hand in hand with a youthful history of conduct disorder and a present diagnosis of some sort of mental illness, our police officers are ill-equipped to deal with that, right? And so you saw where the mayor came out and funded mental health support. That's a great idea because a lot of times we've had individuals killed or harmed, even officers killed, because they didn't understand the person they were dealing with was, was having an episode. And I think the more we educate ourselves and learn from our experiences, uh, we'll be in a better position to save lives, but at the same time, maintain public safety. Absolutely. I think it's pretty clear to say that police are necessary, but not sufficient. That's reducing violent crime. And one of the evidence-based strategies that has been shown to reduce violence is connecting people with cognitive-based therapy, is getting people the personal skills they need to learn how to deal with trauma, the effects of trauma, how to calm yourself so that when you are put in a high-stress situation, you do not do what your body wants you to do, which is feel like it's under threat and lash out and protect yourself. And said you learn how to calm and de-stress so that situations don't have to end in violence. Have any cities been able to reduce their homicide rates? 
Dallas has been touting its success in driving down its homicide rate by about 16% last year. And they said, like, well, we all got together at the beginning of the year. and We put together a violent crime strategy. So what did they do? One, they got a police chief who is data-driven and said we were going to be focused on these hyper-specific places. Two, we're going to get the police the resources they need so they feel like they have our support to do the job that needs to be done. And they understand what that job is, which is to focus on violent crime. If people trust the police, they turn in murderers. If they don't trust the police, they don't turn in. So we have clear signs out there where we can actually begin to assess that relationship between the police and the community. And we have several other tools that we're underfunding that need to be working in unison with the police because we can save a lot of police lives. We can save a lot of lives in the community. We can save a lot of heartache when we educate ourselves and understand just what's behind all of this violent crime uptick. That is a great place to end. Thank you both for talking with me. Now it's time for some news. I am here with producer Farrell Gibbs. Farrell, what is going on? This is from Andrea Leinfelder from the Houston Chronicle. She covers the space beat. Oh boy, I love space. Well, there's a Houston area company that is going to build an inflatable studio in space, and they're teaming up with the producer of an upcoming Tom Cruise movie. Ooh, Tom Cruise in space? I guess for some reason I thought he was in space two years ago. <laughs> it it might have just been the, the coronavirus came along. and But anyway, the name... All right, anyway, the, the real story right, here. Right, right. <laughs> There's a Houston-based company called Axiom Space, and the module that they're building is called C1. That's S-E-E-1. I think it stands for Space Entertainment Enterprise. And it's going to be, they say, an entertainment arena and content studio for TV, for music, and sporting events and microgravity. Wow. Okay, so Axiom is the group that's building their own private space station, right? And this is just going to be some sort of entertainment thing. An inflatable entertainment thing that they are sticking on to their own private space station? Yeah, it's really cool the way this is going to work. I think they're going to launch that space station you just referred to in 2024. That's going to link up with the International Space Station, which is nearing the end of its career. And then when it does, the Axiom Space Station is going to disembark and become its own space station. And it will have this 20-foot in diameter module for filming movies and doing music and stuff attached to it and it will become its own thing do you want to go into space do you want to be the city cast space correspondent it's so funny you asked that when i was putting this together today <laughs> uh-huh. i've always wanted to go into space and i caught myself wondering will i be able to do that before i become a, an old man and die and, and i thought to myself no probably not i probably will never get to go but if you can arrange that with city cast i will be the volunteer <laughs> i would love to go All right. Thanks, Farrell. You're very welcome. That is it for today. Thank all of y'all who gave us five-star ratings on iTunes and Spotify. It makes a huge difference. And if you haven't, please go do it. Thanks, y'all. We will be back tomorrow. See you then. We got five stars, Farrell.